0: take a look at the Gospel of Luke chapter 19 verse 28. One of my favorite iPhone apps is called Today in History, and it gives me snapshots into major world events, births and deaths at this particular day in history. So take for example today, April the 14th. This is not a great day in history. Uh, First of all, in 1912, the RMS Titanic hit an iceberg about 11.40 p.m., Within a matter of hours, the ship ship went below the surface. Thousands have died, and let it just be known that there was room for Jack on the piece of furniture that Rose was laying on. I don't care how many times you try to argue differently, she was a selfish woman, and she could have made room for him on that piece of wood. Period. It also is on this day, on Good Friday in 1865, that President Abraham Lincoln was shot by John Wilkes Booth in the fourth theater in Washington. To many, Booth is the most cowardly, despicable man in history. Yet there are some who try to argue he's one of the great heroes of this war of northern aggression. Lincoln is undoubtedly one of the most remarkable leaders in world history. What Lincoln was able to do is just pure brilliance. And yet, to many of his contemporaries, they called him a tyrant. The great words of Albert Einstein come to mind. Two things are infinite, the universe and human stupidity. And I'm not sure so much on human ability. It's common for people to see great people and misinterpret them. Take, for example, Jesus of Nazareth. A distorted and misinterpreted and, and uh, failing perspective of who Jesus is lands us to this week, we call Holy Week. See, it happened over three years of his public ministry where Jesus is going about the towns and villages and people begin to encounter him. They weren't sure what to do with him. They weren't sure what to do with the rumors that were spoken about him. It was a highly debated topic of his day. Was he Messiah? Was he the king that would restore Israel back to glory? Or was he just another prophet? This especially is heating up as Jesus is heading into Jerusalem for the week of Passover. All this begins with a triumphal infant, inf- good Lord, triumphal entry in Luke chapter 19 verse 20, which is our scripture this morning. So read with me. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found just as they had been told. And as they were untying the colt, its owner asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down from the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they kept quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you. When your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side, they will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Most of us see the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday as this serene image. Jesus is riding in on the back of a donkey adorned in the bleached white robes that were recently pressed by an ancient dry cleaner. Hundreds, if not thousands, of people rejoicing and ushering Jesus into the city. What we fail to miss about this piscaret pisc- image of a, is the downright insurrection that galvanized this moment. Jesus does not come into Jerusalem as a peaceful Messiah. This is a very bold act of insurrection. Jesus is rebelling against the Jewish religious system that was full of corruption and sharing bed with the overbearing might of the Roman Empire. Jesus comes into the city riding on the back of a donkey with fanfare all around him. This is the triumphal entry that a king would receive upon coming in a city. The Old Testament shows us stories of King David and his two sons, Absalom and Solomon. Good gracious, y'all. I'm going to be able to speak today. Solomon both came into the city in such a kingly way. You see, the triumphal entry was an act of insurrection by Jesus. Though he was not the king that we understood him to be. You see, kings made triumphal entries throughout history. The one that bears the most significance uh, to Jesus' triumphal entry is that of Julius Caesar. The crossing of a small stream in northern Italy became one of ancient history's most pivotal events. From it, the Roman Empire sprang up in the genesis of modern Europe as we know it. Being born in obscurity, Julius Caesar rose in the ranks of the Roman army, becoming the greatest general and the most powerful governor. And Caesar's popularity within the people soared, presenting a threat to the Senate and to Pompey, who held power in Rome. And according to the Senate, they called upon Caesar to resign his command of the army, disband his army at risk of being declared an enemy of the state. And Pompey was entrusted with enforcing this edict. The foundation for civil war was laid. But in January 49 BCE, Caesar decided that he would do no such thing. An ancient Roman law forbid a general of crossing the Rubicon and entering into Italy with a standing army. To do so was treason. This tiny stream would reveal Caesar's intentions and mark the point of no return. Caesar crossed the Rubicon. You see, Jesus isn't an idiot. He didn't enter into the great city of Jerusalem in such a way during the week of Passover as an accident. He's sending a message. Passover is kind of like the Super Bowl of all Jewish holidays and celebrations. Its roots stretch back to the ancient Israel's slavery in Egypt. And God promised the people that if they painted blood over the door frames of their house, that the archangel of the Lord would pass over and spare them of their firstborn's death. We read the story that the Egyptian firstborns died, but the Hebrews did not. You see, Passover was a lively affair. The population of the city would have quadrupled as Jews poured in for a a pilgrimage to a time of festival and prayer and celebration. The streets and alleys would have been packed to people. People would have come from all over the world to be a part of seeing this magnificent structure of the temple. People were flooding into the temple. The temple would have been filled with people. And the temple, well, that is exactly where Jesus begins to turn his attention. Even the Pharisees are catching on to what's happening in this moment. Verse 39 states that he told told him to instruct his disciples to stop this nonsense. Yes, Jesus responds with this prophetic statement about what would happen to the temple. This is an act of insurrection. This is an act that declares God is king. This is the type of king that the people thought they were getting with Jesus. This is the type of king we want in Jesus. We want King Jesus to stand against power and corruption and injustice. We want a king who will fight our battles and win our wars. But what we don't realize, and what the people didn't realize, is we still want to shape Jesus to be the king. That we want. And not the type of king that he truly is. Look at verse 45. It says when Jesus entered the temple courts he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written he said my house will be a house of prayer but you have made it into a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple but the chief priests the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it. Because all the people hung on his words so much for our clean and meek and peaceful image of jesus some crazy stuff just went down in the temple let's be clear not to criminalize those who were conducting business in the temple you see animal sellers and money exchangers were authorized by the law to provide the people a service the problem is that is not their service the problem was the way they were running their business A good Jewish man might come and present his lamb for a sacrifice. He would be told by a temple official that this lamb has a blemish, and if he truly loved God, then he would swap it out and buy a pure lamb, in turn... His blemished lamb would be sold to somebody else as a pure lamb. Or if you came in with Roman currency, well, the temple couldn't accept an image of the Roman Caesar on it, and you tied that to God, so you had to exchange your Roman money for their Hebrew money with a supreme upcharge. You see, Jesus was stepping forward into a classic racketeering scheme. And how do you think he was going to respond? He's already been traveling the regions and gaining a reputation as a troublemaker, as a ruffling the feathers of the religious centers and the leaders. He's been breaking all the rules, empowering the outcasts, the poor, the marginalized, and the unclean by telling them that God loves them too and values them. And let's not point out this innocent and paint this with an innocent brush of this passage. Jesus is very angry. The practice of the temple had become so distorted beyond recognition that Jesus sought to purify the temple in this moment. Jesus wants to destroy the commerce itself. And this isn't for the first time, but for the thousandth time that God has chosen justice over worship. The echoes of the prophet Isaiah might come flooding into our ears. I've had enough of your sacrifice of your festivals, of your acts of worship. They're empty and meaningless. Wash your hands and make yourself clean. Stop doing wrong. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the orphan and the widows. You see, Jesus puts the attributes of a prophet on as he goes forward. He's putting a a proverbial stick of dynamite right in the middle of the religious and societal and political corruption of his day, and then he strikes a match. To the religious leaders, he failed their expectations because he persisted upon having company of sinners. To many who were following him at this time, he failed their expectations because he kept telling them to love their enemy, those Samaritans and those Gentiles and those Romans, To the people of Jerusalem, he was failing their expectations because he was not the king that was coming to kick out the Romans as they anticipated. You see, Jesus failed the expectations because he was a different type of Messiah than we expected him to be. He failed their expectations. And often he fails our expectations of who we want him to be. 2019 has brought some great news for me. News broke that actor Ben Affleck will no longer be starring as Batman in any upcoming DC comic movies. To me, it's akin of like Tom Brady no longer playing quarterback in the NFL or the NCAA banning the Auburn Tigers from playing any sports just because, well, they're Auburn. This guy has already ruined one of my favorite and beloved characters with those early 2000 portrayals of Daredevil, and he certainly has done the same things with the three movies he has played Batman in. But Batman is the most complex hero in all of the DC universe. He deserves to be portrayed by a better actor. Here's a man who comes from unimaginable wealth, yet chooses to sacrifice his life again and again for the city of Gotham. He could have chose to live a, a life differently in response to his parents' murder, yet he chooses sacrifice and justice. The wealthiest man in Gotham will adorn Habbat suit, stand against corruption. He is willing to crawl around the rooftops at night to fight crime at the cost of his health and his relationships. But despite all that he does for the city, the people of Gotham reject him and blame him for their setbacks. They're willing to hunt him and to chase him so they might pay him back for their own corruption. This is why Commissioner Gordon gives one of the best descriptions of Batman, saying, "...he is the hero we need, but not the hero we deserve. So we'll hunt him, because he can take it, because he's not our hero. He's a silent guardian, he's a watchful protector, he's a dark knight." You see, as Jesus steps into the temple and as he begins to overturn the tables, we start to get a better perspective of who Jesus is, not who we want him to be. Jesus was a threat to their way of life. He was a threat to their religious system. He was a threat to their economic powers. He was a threat to their powers, And if we truly encountered the real Jesus of Nazareth, then we would begin to realize that he is a threat to our way of life. Instead of being the king we want to shape, Jesus is the prophet king that we want to silence. If Jesus was to walk into our modern day temples, what would he begin to overturn? You see, the Jesus of the gospel would overturn our corrupt practices of loving ourselves more than we love our neighbor. He would dash the surplus of our abundance when there are so many people just dying for a scrap of something. Jesus of Nazareth would be an utter threat to the corruption of the way that we merge our economic and political perspectives to shape our theological perspectives instead of the other way around. I believe that Jesus, with all of my being, would, would chase after our willingness to so distort his message into what we want it to say. Who are the marginalized? Who are the outcast? Who are the modern day temple rulers? You see, Jesus is a threat to our little kingdoms. Jesus is a threat to our way of life. It is a kingdom that calls us to depend on God for daily bread, not our five years of bread and for so on to seek forgiveness of, of debts and sin, to avoid the temptation to commit evil against our neighbors, to live a radical life of forgiveness and love and humility. Jesus stands against so many things that we don't want to believe in. And I'm not preaching a new message. I'm not even preaching my message. It's been the message of the Old Testament and the New Testament and from the letters of Jesus. For this reason, Jesus was the king that we had to murder. So what do you do with someone who's a threat to your way of life, to your comfort and your power? Well, you kill them. As the poet Gilbert Thurston said, any man who preaches real love is bound to beget hate. Real love always ends in bloodshed. You see, Luke tells us that the religious leaders begin to plot how they would kill him. Maybe even Jesus' actions rattled his very disciples because we know that in just a few hours, Judas Iscariot would choose to betray him. We know that after he falsely is accused and arrested, the disciples would flee and hide Even Peter the Rock would deny that he knows Jesus. The Jewish system of politics and faith that Jesus threatened spat upon him. They punched him in the face. They beat him beyond recognition. And then they put him on a cross. That is what we do to a king that doesn't fit into our format and our ideals. The same people who begin to cry out, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, might soon be the very people who said, crucify him, crucify him. As Kirk Vonnegut wrote, vanity rather than wisdom determines how the world is run. It is a tragedy, perhaps, that human beings can get so much energy and enthusiasm from hate. We sat down recently and watched a movie, and it's one of those movies where you know the ending, yet for some reason you're nervous the whole time. I don't know if you've seen the movie First Man. It tells the story of Neil Armstrong. As the story unfolds, you learn of Neil Armstrong's personal struggles while he's going through the NASA program. He struggles with being present as a father and as a husband with his commitments of his dreams. We learn about the engineering struggles of the Gemini and Apollo programs as he watched his friends die um, through accidents. And despite the fact that we know the ending... This man lived a very difficult life. You're nervous for him the whole time. You want to change the narrative to just get to the end. You know the ending, but it's so painful and nervous to watch. This is what it's like for us to look at the passion narrative. We know the ending of Good Friday. We know that Jesus is arrested and brutally tortured and crucified. We even know, if we're honest with ourselves, that we know that we somehow play a part in silencing Jesus. And that gut-wrenching feeling of what we have experienced in the past and present, we want to rewrite this narrative. But the reality is that we can't rewrite it. We can't undo what has been done. In other minds, we we want to alter the facts of Jesus and his story. We want to shape and form him into something that fits into our comfort, but we can't rewrite this narrative. This is what has been done. This is what is happening. William P. Young, the author of The Shack, writes, the old must be torn down for the new to be raised. To have a resurrection, you must have a crucifixion. But God wastes nothing, not even the wrong we imagine into existence. In every building torn down, there much that remains is that there once was true and right and good. And that gets woven into the new. In fact, the new could not be what it is without the old. It is a refurbishing of the soul. You see, the reality is that we can't rewrite the narrative. But God is inviting us to rewrite our narrative. God is inviting us through Jesus to take what we have written. We've taken this Messiah that we want to portray a safe and comfortable and apathetic version, and God wants to rewrite a new understanding of Jesus within us where we see he is a vibrant and life-giving prophet, a rebel and a savior that is inviting us into a new story. God wants to rewrite our narrative of leading Jesus into what we want him to be. God is inviting us to rewrite the narrative in which we truly follow Jesus. Yes, the way of Jesus that landed him on a cross. In Jesus, God wants to rewrite our narrative from aggressive to peaceful, from anger to joy, from self righteousness to humble, from violent to meek, from hatred to love. But this isn't comfortable. It's really, really hard. And yet we remember on this Palm Sunday with the shadow of Good Friday looming over us that Jesus chose the path left traveled, the path of shame and humility and death. Jesus chose us for the world. Can you let God rewrite your narrative? God desires to form us into something extraordinary. In fact, God is not trying to change us into someone we are not. God is inviting us to become who we were created to be, creatures of love and joy and peace and goodness and gentleness and service and compassion and hope. God desires to take a narrative that has been twisted and misquoted and fabricated and rewrite it into a narrative of truth and purity and uniqueness. Will you allow Jesus, the Jesus seen in the Gospels, to follow in his footsteps into a spiritual revolution, one that rewrites your narrative? May we choose the Jesus that threatens our comfort, calling us into something transformedly beautiful.